Most human languages have a copy of God's word, right? 7,100 languages exist in the world. Out of that, there's less than 700 complete Bibles in the world. So we're talking about less than 10%. So there's, there's a lot of work to give people access to God's word. The new translation method that's producing entire Bibles in 40 weeks? Today on the Missions Podcast. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. My name is Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined yet again by Scott Dunford, coming to us through the power of the web, which has not been very powerful for us today, actually, has it, Scott? You know, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely some interference going on, but we'll muddle through somehow. I think it's your neighbor, Elon Musk, probably out there flying his drones again or something interfering with the Wi-Fi in your neighborhood. You know, if there was going to ever be a like a Bond level super villain, Elon Musk would fit that profile so perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I could, and I can see him sucking out all the Wi-Fi, uh, although I don't know if that's what, even possible to, to, <laughs> to, to run some kind of new Tesla super weapon. But yes, Tesla's right down the road from me, drive by it all the time. And yes, Elon Musk is my neighbor, I guess. Well, speaking of James Bond level supervillains, we have a representative from a competing missions organization with us on the line today. Or is that not a good segue? Oh man, he's not even smiling. We can see each other. I wish we could I wish we could compete. That would be incredible to have two organizations of that size doing the work that they're doing. Uh, Well, for those who uh, can't see what we can see uh, through FaceTime, uh, our guest Dan just held up his little uh, Darth Vader figurine there. So maybe he is turning us over to the dark side and we should probably stop now and quit while we're ahead. Dan Kramer of Wycliffe is joining us and Dan, please share who you are and what your area of ministry and expertise is within Wycliffe and what uh, made us want to have you on the show today. Hey, I accept your title and also uh, <laughs> SpaceX is down the road for me and they had a failed rocket launch. So we're kind of booking these situation. Wow, yes. My role is uh, executive director of strategic programs. It's a new title. Um, it was formerly education services. Basically, I get to create any kind of program that ex- helps to accelerate enhance Bible translation. So what, what are you talking about when you're saying advance and accelerate Bible translation and, and why, why would that require an executive director to see <laughs> the strategy of that? Yeah, I'm also getting used to that little uh, extra piece to the title, which I can barely get out of my mouth. But um, uh, Bible translation has been trying to get accelerated around the world for decades now and trying to advance its effort so that everybody can have scripture and God's word or God's word in in everybody's language. And in doing that, one of the things that's come out is a vision that's shared between several organizations called Vision 2025, which means that um, every language will be touched by scripture at some time. Now, different organizations have different expressions of that. Our expression is we want every language to have a whole Bible by that. Mm. So the numbers are staggering and they're huge. So to go after that, um, takes a lot of creative programs and a lot of field implementation to try to facilitate that towards reality. So that's what I kind of get to do is create a new program, test it, put it out there on the field and push it forward if it's successful and get it as far reaching as we can. So I, I heard a joke a long time ago. I'm sure you've heard this joke. It's just that bad that preachers have to repeat it. But it's like, you know, what do you call someone who speaks three languages? You know, they're, they're trilingual. What do you speak? Someone who speaks two languages, they're bilingual. Someone who speaks one language, 
an American. So uh, for most Americans, and I, I, I've lived around the world, and that's pretty true. A lot of Americans only speak English. So can you give us an idea when you're talking about languages and numbers like that, that need this kind of strategic energy put toward Bible translation? Can you give us an idea of how many languages are there? How many languages still need the scriptures? Tell us a little bit about that. It's actually a really complex question. And from a Western view, it is challenging. It's challenging to look at you're talking to the same monolingual type person um, as well who's trying to facilitate these programs. But there is a, a category of languages that are distinct to a Western definition that says 7,100 languages approximately exist in the world. Out of that, there are only, there's less than 700 complete Bibles in the world. So we're talking mm. about less than 10% have mm. God's full testimony to that. Okay, and so with that, there are a couple thousand New Testaments that are out there, but there's still a lot lacking in what needs to be out there for New Testaments even. Mm. But then you have sign languages. And sign languages, there's 425 known sign languages in the world. Today, there are zero whole Bibles that, that people who are deaf and know a sign language can watch. And there's only three New Testaments in the world that are completed. So there's, there's a lot of work for a lot of languages to give people access to God's Word. So uh, to play devil's advocate, there are tons of languages, language groups, but there are a number of parts of the world where regardless of whatever dialect or tribal tongue you might speak, there's going to be a lingua franca where you can come in and use the trade language of English or French or something else like that. Isn't there an advantage to saying as long as we can get the Bible into the trade language, the common shared language of a particular group of people, can't that suffice in a lot of these cases? Does every single individual small tribal tongue need its full version of scripture? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a common one as well. But I can give you some of the best statistics that we have. So if you were to take about 40 to 50 of the most common languages in the world and say, let's spread those out around the world, how much population does it cover? The estimates are somewhere between 85 and 90% of the world's population. So the first thing we would have to acknowledge is 10 to 15% are excluded um, in that. Mm -hmm. And then if they're excluded, um, what else are we willing to exclude? Okay, but those are good estimates. The real estimates are potentially 1.2 million people worldwide will never have access to God's word in another language other than their own um, that they're born into. Well, that's one seventh of the world. And that's a huge number for me um, to say, okay, let's leave that out. So you might still say that's, that's a percentage that we could deal with. But Language is more complex than it. Just because they know a language, it's their second language. There's a degree of loss in that. And so if, if I were to say to you, um, and it's really more challenging for us being monolingual, um, hey, you're going to learn another language. And in seven years, when you get fluent in that language, then you can read God's word. And by the way, after that seven years, there's always going to be a degree of loss of what you don't understand because it's not the language you were born into. Mm -hmm. And so what percentage of loss would you be willing to accept for God's word in your existence? Or how about your children that you teach? Um, so it, it really becomes a flip question of saying, what are we willing to give up for the ease of what languages exist out there? So we, we say none. Everybody should be able to have it and have it at immediately as they grow up, as they're in school, as they become adults at any point in time. Um, and so... So that becomes the critical mass, because if you put numbers to that, 
of who will die in that span of time before they learn God's word in another language, that's their second language, uh, that becomes real. And, and I think that's the biggest loss is to say, put those numbers to the test. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands to millions. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, I've seen that so many times where we've got people that we're working with here in California that uh, English is their second language and they're very fluent in English. They can communicate well. They could even sit and listen to my sermon in English, but there are so many things that they miss. So we had a, a meeting the other day planned where um, uh, another pastor was going to come and meet with the leaders of our church. We we're discussing things and, and we use the term we're meeting at this place. Um, so come and join us. And, um, and he, he used a different definition of meeting. He thought we were having our Sunday services at this place. And so he interpreted the, the message one way where we were saying, we're having a meeting. We want you to become part of our, our, like our, like our discussion that we're having at this place right now. And it was a total miscommunication, even, even with someone who's very, very good in, in English. And, and I see that almost every Sunday with people that we're ministering with and to where if, if you, you know, if, if you don't have uh, native fluency, you're going to miss some. And how many people are very good at like conversational or even trade like English? But then when it comes to theological terms or spiritual things or emotional issues, um, they don't know those words or don't know how to communicate. It's, it's funny how I've seen this myself. I, I speak bad Mandarin at this point. And uh, I had a moment where I was, you know, on a bus and a crisis happened. And rather than yelling out in Chinese, which would have been very useful. I yelled out in English because that was the emotional response language that I had, you know, yeah. and, uh, and how important that is that we get the word of God into into people's hands yeah. in yeah. a language that they feel. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've heard and seen people with tears in their eyes say, God speaks my language. Now he speaks right to me. And mm. that's the key phrase that triggers us to be motivated and say, um, Oh, I can't imagine that feeling in the opposite direction as saying, well, God doesn't speak to me. He speaks to them and I have to go through them to speak to God. Uh, it, that's really not, not what Christianity is um, with Jesus coming to us as the word. Um, he wants that personal interaction. And so that's probably the strongest foundation in a biblical sense is he wants to relate with us personally. And that's what this does. Well, and that's critical. And we can all, talk about that for a while. We believe in the importance of uh, hearing and believing the word of God. Salvation comes by hearing, right? That's what we know and affirm. And so Bible translation is important and significant, but not without controversy. I mean, even in our own context, there's plenty of English translations of the Bible that draw criticism. And there's lots of controversy in the American church in certain pockets of evangelicalism over which translation you use and how much more so in the realm of missions and on the field. So for instance, I was recently reading some articles uh, by a friend of mine discussing the fact that there are some translations of scripture that want to soften and not use words like the son of God in Muslim contexts so as to avoid misunderstanding, but you're actually not translating those words. You're substituting some other title out there. And so there's compromise. So you could be too rigid or you can be uh, maybe, maybe too loose and there's maybe a sweet spot somewhere in the middle, but uh, tell us about what some of those traditional methodologies are that have been used in Bible translation over the years. And then you yourself have been a part of developing a, a newer methodology. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, 
So I kind of look at the largest span uh, that I possibly can for context of Bible translation. When you look back uh, throughout history, the scriptures itself has been um, kind of protected and translated over time. You have the oral tradition of the of the Old Testament that was that was transcended over time, and then you have the literal scrolls that were there, and then you have you have the New Testament that was written fairly um, quickly, fairly early, but then it jumps in, in periods of history. Um, you have the actual assemblance and governance of, of Scripture, um, but then you have people who in the Reformation are starting to do this and translate it and spread it out. Okay, but you have some texts that are happening throughout this whole time. Okay, so you have Ethiopia that has um, translation that was happening fairly early, probably one of the top five um, languages that were translated quickly was in Amharic. So you have all this translation activity happening, but with the Reformation, you see some interesting things. You see people like Martin Luther who said, you know what, I'm going to take this task and I'm going to publish quickly and I'm going to get this out to the people. I'm going to get feedback. I'm going to revise and I'm going to get it out again. And as an individual, he did things really quickly. The 80-year history, the modern history, 80, 90 years now, is when a man, Cameron Townsend, went to Guatemala, and the legend has it that he he was passing out Spanish Bibles, and a man said, um, if your God's so big, why doesn't he speak my language? And he took it upon himself to raise raise uh, uh, up a, an effort to give those people scripture. That's a Ketchikal language in Guatemala. In doing that, um, that started the modern movement of Bible translation, which started involving people in looking at what is linguistics to Bible translation. So organizations were formed to study linguistics, and that was a certain time in history that was um, actually an analysis of language. Okay, Now you got to go back in time and say what was happening educationally with linguistics. Well, linguistics was largely influenced by grammatical study of tear down the language, analyze it, look at it, build it back up. Now insert a Westerner who doesn't know that language, and they have to not only learn linguistics, they have to learn what that language is. They have to learn to become fluent in it the best they can. They have to learn the national language at the same time. Then they need translation principles, and then they need um, some theology background. Well, that created a system with, that's all we had. The church was still growing. Missions was still going out there around the world and, and doing church planting in its, in its large-scale effort. And so the Westerner needed to go and do that. Well, it took one New Testament, one life. And mm. that was that was the mantra of Bible translation, which was a phenomenal foundation, a great foundation. Somewhere in the 80s, early 90s, um, we started to see the efforts of the church uh, growth that was happening around the world. And you started to see the efforts of Bible translation around the world. And people looked at this and said, wait a second, why can't the nationals just do this? And so they did. And what happened is it went from a 20-year New Testament on average from a Westerner to about 10 years for a New Testament. And that doesn't include some of the training and things like that that happen on the book on. So you train the beginning, you do the translation, and then you do the um, back part of that, which is publishing and checking and things like that. So it still took a long time, but it greatly reduced it to about half the timeline. And so that was the uh, basic understanding of how translation worked over time and the basic timelines. And I entered into that field, and I was um, teaching English. My job was to teach English because all the training 
for all these nationals around the world had to be in English. Where do you get your resource materials? English. How about your funding? Well, Western organizations, so business reports are in English. How about your technology? Coming from the West, learn English. So that was my job, and I actually changed my life um, around. I was a teacher in Michigan, and I, I came down to Florida and said, I'll do my best to provide an English program for the world. And in about two years, we had spread this program out around to 30 countries um, serving Bible translation and these traditional projects. And it was this one partner in Nepal who I was on a walk with, and he said, you know, your English program is really good. I learned English at the British school. I see my staff members learning it much faster than I ever did. Could you do a methodology that works like that for Bible translation? And Honestly, I didn't understand his question. I kind of refused it and said, I didn't understand it either. I I'm, (laughs) I'm struggling to follow this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I rejected it, but, uh, he was a good enough friend where he kept pressing saying, look, your methodology in English, it's faster. It's actually fun. And you give us a voice as nationals. We don't get a voice in what we get to do. You're allowing us to choose how we learn. Could you do that for Bible translation? Mm. And I still said, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, How about this? How about you teach me what you do in Bible translation? I'll approach it like a teacher and see if there's anything I can do to try and experiment. And so that became became the first part of what was an experiment back in 2014. Um, And that's where the new methodology came from. So that was the old the new was the experiment, and so we prayed and and um, tried to gather some kind of a semblance of learning in seven months' time, so we could go and try something in Nepal. Um, so tell us, I, we're on, we're sitting on the edge of our seats, right, going, so, "Okay, how did this turn out?" Right, yeah. I, still, I still don't get it. I, I'm just yeah. going to say, I still don't get it. <laughs> yeah, Walk me yeah. through this. Yep. And so, I mean, the 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 hard part of this is. Um, to explain, um, I was I was really trying to learn as much as I could, and everything I learned was a linguistics point of view. I had a background in linguistics, but I was no by no means an expert in linguistics. Um, I tried to do something that might help and assist and accelerate what they were doing, and I even called this man up from Nepal and I said, "Would this help?" And he politely said yes, but I could tell it was an Asian yes, which really meant no. Um, so, Translation. Right. And so I hung up the phone and I thought, you know, I'm, I give, I give up. I don't know what to do. And I prayed a little bit and I said, God, if there's something I'm supposed to do, help me to do it. And I, I had this big sheet of paper out on my dining room table and I, I started to go to bed and something caught my eye and it said church checking six months later. I sat down and I said, I'm a teacher. If I gave an assignment and somebody was to check my work six months later, how would I feel? And how would I even be be looking at my work six months down the road? Mm. And I thought that's just irrelevant. And so basically this process that was taking the Nepalese 10 years, they would learn how to translate. They would study the scriptures. They would begin translation. They would translate about five verses a day. And then they would collect all this translated work, and then somebody would come in six months later with the church Mm. to take a look at it for the first time. I thought, why can't we do that immediately? 
and I started to look at the process of translation through the eyes of a teacher. The second thing I said is, I have worked with students who've immigrated from all over the world into the United States, and my job was to teach them English. I know how fast they can write. Why is it taking so long to write five verses a day? That's crazy to me. So I started to put together a process, a writing process, and said, you know what? If we measure this, and if we do what I know the students can do, and I've seen them do, we can do a New Testament in about three years, three months. And I went to bed feeling great. I thought, we chopped seven years off Bible translation, and all of a sudden we're going to translate with a different methodology that has a design for drafting and a design for checking immediately, and we're going we're gonna to do something amazing. But then I... I prayed on it some more, and I met with some experts in the field, and I brought them into a room, curriculum experts, Greek and Hebrew experts, and Bible translation experts, and I said, I want to I look at this a little bit more, and I want to refine what's on paper for a plan. And we did that, and I left that meeting, and, and I measured what I thought we could do using this new methodology, and I believed that we could set up a test to do translation for a New Testament in 40 weeks. Okay, now, I sounded like a crazy person. I basically was saying the people who took 20 years, like us, Westerners, and the people who are nationals born into the language who took 10 years, we're now going to do an experiment to try to take 40 weeks to do a Bible translation. I didn't want to tell anybody because I sounded like such a crazy person. Mm. <laughs> um, but that was the... the um, experiment we set up for June of 2014. So we took four translation groups and we said, let's test this methodology in all four groups. And the methodology was basically eight steps, four steps for drafting, four steps for checking, and then let's measure the quality in comparison to what they were doing before because they were already trained Bible translators. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. Um, and the first day, they hated us. They wanted to run us out of Nepal and thought, what are you doing? This is so backwards from what we're used to that there's no way this could be good. And I, I, I thanked them for the experiment. I regrouped my team in another building, and I said, keep going. We have to keep going. Um, if we don't have any experiment, if we stop now. So we did, went the second day, and by the end of that day, two of the teams had changed because they went through all eight steps and they said, this actually works and this is better. And their pace was right on. It was about 30 verses a day. Hmm. By the third day, um, we had three of the teams. And by the end of the week, we had five of the teams and we were just doing a sample. We did first and second Thessalonians in five days. And we then had it checked and we saw quality that was comparable to anything that they had ever done. Um, and so that was our very first experiment, and uh, we got thumbs up from all four groups that this was faster, this was better, and it was achieving the same quality or better than they had prior done prior. Okay, so so pretending I'm five, and you need to explain it to me like I'm five, just so that we're clear. So, so yep. first of all, the nationals are more involved. So you're not talking about training Westerners or Americans in particular who are going to have to learn multiple languages. It's just going to take longer. You're you're starting with 
um, indigenous speakers who've learned English as a second language. And so they're they're but they understand the language that they're translating scripture into a lot better. So you're starting with that. And then second, the feedback loop, for whatever reason, it was taking uh, ministries six months to check on the quality of translation. And you're, you're kind of have this immediate almost back and forth thing going on through the web so that they can translate, you know, 30 verses a day and immediately get feedback from somebody at Wycliffe and go back and forth. Am I, are those two things? Is that, is that about right? Almost. Um, yes to the national part. And so they have a, a majority language and a trusted source text. Okay. So it doesn't have to be English. It could be Nepali or Mandarin or something else. And we have source text that we can translate from. And then the second thing is they're not getting feedback from, from us. They're actually getting feedback from their church leaders. And so they're actually oh. right at the table in the process. Imagine that. Them. Imagine that using the local church and its leaders. Hey, exactly. That was a huge shift in translation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the organization's prior methodology was let's bring in an expert who's done translation before and has gone through linguistics and Greek and Hebrew and theology and master's degree and, um, and consultant checking. And so these consultants became a critical need for quality which created a bottleneck, which was part of the process that slowed everything down. Well, the church is different today than 80 years ago. The church actually is really well-developed and, and in some cases, shockingly theologi- theologically sound beyond our comprehension. And they're involved. They're at the table and they're overseeing the quality and they're stewarding God's word. Okay. Is, so, so, but, yeah. so, but question. So what, yeah. and realizing that you're working with so many different translation projects, it might be hard to broad brush, uh, but you're, you're maybe talking about past, you know, so over 80% of the world's evangelical pastors have no formal theological education. So what makes them a better check? Um, obviously they know the culture and the language, but what would make that just as strong a check as somebody who does understand Greek does understand Hebrew, has had theological training, because I think we would all say theology matters. Yeah, absolutely. Theology matters. And and the first thing I'll do is, is um, point out something that you said that actually is profound. Um, they do know the language. Okay, without knowing the language, there is no way to check the true quality of that language. And that's what was happening. So when you put a Western in Westerner in there, you're already at a disadvantage because you're having to go through multiple layers of translation to get to what is quality. Okay, and so uh, that's unnerving for me. Um, but the second thing is, is flip the question around. It's not about what they don't have. It's about what they do have. Okay, and so out of a church and community, how many people can be brought to the table is the first question. Okay, you're crowdsourcing, you're bringing multiple eyes. Okay, and so and you're doing that, can we find one in the community that's a pastor that was theologically trained? If we cannot, um, what resources can we provide to substitute for that? And what tools can we provide for them to do that? If also, what can we do? Can we bring neighboring communities where somebody is there as well? And, and further, if somebody is not theologically trained, and according to what we might say is theologically trained, um, what pieces do they have to actually check scripture in a way that we know that needs to be checked? Okay, here's the, here's the thing is if we sat in a room today and said, let's break down what makes quality scripture, we could come up with a list and we could say, these are all the things that come up with quality scripture. If I were to take that between the three of us right here and say, let's compare that list to the experts out there who've, list, who've, who've existed 30 years in Bible translation. 
and said the same question. Do you know that list would come out almost exactly the same? And then if I go to the church worldwide and say, give me a list of what it, what it takes to make quality scripture, they would come up with exactly the same list. And the reason I know this is because I have hundreds of these lists collected from around the world. Hmm. And so when you take that list and you say, okay, what are the qualities? And now you have not two people in a room doing translation, but 30 people in a room doing translation. How about you take these three qualities and look over every single verse for those three qualities? How about you next to you, next to that person, you take a different quality. And as you compound that around the room, you've divided up the work to bite-sized pieces to where they may not be a theologian, but they can check a piece and they can actually get that quality characteristic. And that theologian can check their checking. And so you've got layered checking that goes into it as well. Is there a point in time in which, um, you know, the experts in Greek and Hebrew are coming in along? Because I know even working with with certain pretty popular Bibles that there are things that we look at and go like, yeah, that that was a theological problem in a translation that happened, you know, 100 years ago that keeps perpetuating itself. And it right. led to a theological uh, like, you know, you think about think about even, you know, like the, the King James Version and how many little words were translated a certain way because of the theological proclivities of the translators. You know, they avoided immersion, for instance, because, you know, it's easier to transliterate baptizo into, into baptize because rather than dealing with, with the implications of the meaning of the word, how do you, how do you check right. that? Sorry to any of so our Presbyterian listeners, but it means to fully immerse. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they know, they know that, but, uh, <laughs> but how do you, how do you, do that to, to check, uh, to make yeah. sure that we're not just repeating a theological error that could be already in the Bible translations that they were using previous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great question. And first I need to kind of clarify a myth. A myth is that translation is happening from original Greek Hebrew. Um, that's actually not happening um, worldwide in any methodology that's out there. There's a, a few things that you can point to, but we're talking about a fluency issue and we're talking about a source text issue. Okay, so what Greek and Hebrew becomes is a resource to actually look at the quality and push the quality, verify the quality. Um, and so, so the question actually becomes, how can you use Greek and Hebrew as a resource? It looks a little bit like this to put it into a, a sample that's bite-sized for, for communities. Um, I have something that I want to check, and we actually, in the process, demand they check every single keyword that's theological and every keyword of, of meaningful importance to it. So they go through this. It's one of the steps, and they go through and they check all these keywords. Well, there's a question to that keyword. Is it there? And then what is the definition? If that definition doesn't match something that we have already provided them to check it up against which goes back to some of the some of the resources that we have, then we, we have a challenge question and we sit down and we analyze that. That's when you bring tools into the table and say, let's do a cross comparison, multiple source texts that are trusted and translated from from good manuscripts. And then um, then go back to any of the tools that are out there, because that is where Greek and Hebrew actually becomes viable. That's teachable. You can put that in the hands of people and say, this is a process when you have questions here. Be alerted to that question and go backwards, go backwards in the source text, go backwards into the manuscripts. And here are the tools to do so. So we do that over and over again. And I can't tell you, um, you're right on track. I have seen 
Nepali source texts uh, for scripture that sometimes outdo some of the English ones that we trust and say, you know what, that was actually closer to Greek or <laughs> Hebrew. And so their expression of it actually is better than ours. Um, so those are great conversations. That's part of the richness of engaging many people to it. One person doing that is, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal amount of labor and it makes sense why they were doing five verses a day. 20 people, 10 people, 30 people changes the whole game. Mm. Now everything becomes much more bite-sized. And so it becomes, becomes great. I'll take your question mm. of how do we get quality and I'll divide it up among who can do it in the room. Oh, that's helpful. Well, I got, and I got one more thought on that. I want to shift gears in just a minute after that, but first we're going to take a quick break. The Missions Podcast is back at T4G and we're going big. If you'll be in Louisville on April 15th, join us at the Ice House, half a mile from the Yum Center for the local church and the nations, a special live recording of the Missions Podcast with an expert panel. Yeah, guests that you're familiar with, guests that we've had in the show like Zane Pratt, Darren Carlson, Brooks Buser, Paul Davis, John Clausen, and George Collins will join us to answer when Jesus said to disciple all the nations, what did he mean by that? Did he mean countries or people groups or languages and making it practical what can ordinary churches do about that how we answer can make or break our strategies it'll be riveting edifying and we mentioned it's the deepest lunch in town yeah so grab your spot and your food for just ten dollars go to missionspodcast.com slash t4g or follow the link in the show notes and if you're not signed up yet for t4g our partner live global use the code t4g20 live global 10 off to receive ten dollars off your t4g registration go into the show notes and see exactly how that's spelled that's t4g 20 live global 10 off you get ten dollars off your registration and we'd love to see you there absolutely so join us and we'll see you in louisville on april 15th at t4g a special message from abwe president paul davis ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Training is the biggest common denominator in people who make it through the first two years and people who don't. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. Radius is a 10-month intensive training school that trains students who are going to church plants among the last 3,100 unreached groups left in the world. The driving burden is really to see every language group reached with a really strong, lasting New Testament church. Okay, so why should someone attend Radius International? I would say someone should attend radius because we see missionaries that don't make it because they weren't expecting the challenges that were coming at them. Everyone's going to hit hurdles. It's what you do when you hit those hurdles. If you've had those challenges at radius, you get to see those challenges. You get to experience some of them in the environment in Tijuana. And you also have capable staff that have a background and can guide you through a lot of those hurdles. And so you tend to do much better. I'm one of the team leaders. He says there's just something different about radius graduates. They understand and they get through things a lot faster and they do better on the field when the hard times come. What's your final challenge? Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org.
back and enjoying this conversation a lot. And thank you to our listeners who are going through this technical information with us. Uh, we're excited and interested in this. And one of the things that I just want to be sensitive to in this conversation is there's this you know phrase that that is used. Sometimes you can know just enough Greek to be dangerous. Right. I think we've all heard the pastor or the preacher who will just draw some parallel and commit sort of a fallacy based off of, well, the original Greek says X, Y, and Z. Right. And for me, as someone who in my undergrad program in Bible, for whatever reason, I wasn't required to have biblical language classes. I know that's a detriment to me. So I'm sensitive to the fact that I, I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, not enough to be effective and useful with it. So when you talk about using the original manuscripts, which this is this is important theologically, only the original autographs of scripture were inspired. We agree with that. Translations contain the word of God, but only the original manuscripts themselves were inspired. So how can you avoid this thinking that, well, we're going to use the Greek and the Hebrew as a tool along the way? How can you ensure that that's a tool that's not just being used in a sloppy way where you only know enough to be dangerous, as it were, but maybe not enough to fully understand uh, the weight of meaning that's in it? Yeah, also a great question. Um, the first thing I would say is there's a foundation of work from prior prior uh, translators, prior church history that gives us trusted source texts. They, these source texts have stood the test of time of saying they've already gone back to. Mm. Okay, And so those are a body of work that is part of that collection. And it may not be the exact Greek or Hebrew, but they did a great literal job of capturing that meaning. And so it's a comparable text. It's not the only. Okay. And so um, you, you have to wait it out to, um, this, is, this is not a personal opinion that we're talking about of saying, I think it means this. It's no, verify it means that, mm. show it. And it's through the step-by-step process. So it, language, language has a container. Okay. Everybody thinks um, language is infinite because of combinations of words, but it actually has a container of meaning that if you put it into a test of small pieces, contextual pieces, you're controlling its essence of meaning. Okay. For example, um, in step seven of the mass process, you have to check keywords. All right. Is that keyword there and take that all the way back, make it a match for match. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that. Okay. It's short. It's there. It's documented. It's meaning. Um, in those key theological terms. But now you have context. Context messes with that. And so you we do a contextual check right after that and saying, take that verse and do the verse by verse comparable mm. and see. And so you've got a contextual comparison and a keyword comparison that meets in the middle. It is really tough to get inaccuracy when you're doing both of those back to back on the spot the day of translating. Mm. So you've got actually three bubbles. You've got source text that's trusted, and then you've got contextual meaning, and then you've got keyword meaning. It's powerful. Integration of tools mm-hmm. into all that um, and multiplication of people. We're not talking about one person. We're talking yeah. about multiple people getting multiple eyes on this. Um it is tough. That um, is super helpful. That really helps clear stuff up for me. That's good. I, <laughs> I'm the five-year-old here who needed it explained to me very simply. So I'm, I'm good, Scott. So uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious about this. Uh, I have deeper, more important questions later. But uh, I'm just curious, as, as, as you're listening to these, this translation process happening, are you, some, are you ever surprised by 
the contextual cues that that maybe as a American Westerner from Michigan, my wife's from Michigan. I lived in Michigan a long time. I I love Michigan. Uh, that that you thought, hey, this is important, but when you're talking with Napolese, for instance, they pick up on a different cultural text, contextual cue that they think is key to a text. Have you ever seen that, or have you ever been surprised by what one culture or another picks up out of the text as key or central? Yeah, yeah, for definitely. Um, so I I have heard this time and time again across the world told, told to me as this is the best Bible study ever doing this methodology. Mm. And so there's kind of the in process of translation conversation, then there's the extra conversation. Um, the in process conversation is almost like a, a wrestling match if something seems perspectively different. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you think you know, and you're way off. I think the shocking one for me, we did actually a First Nations version um, translation. And I, at first I thought, why in the world are we doing a first nations version? And it's, it's basically collective native American groups who have mm. come together and said, we actually use English different than you do. And when they did the translation, I'm like that, there is no way that's right. I, I pulled stuff <laughs> out and I start looking at it. And when I dug deeper into it, I thought, wow, I am way off. They were actually right. I don't have a specific passage in mind, but I remember yeah. that conversation of saying of coming to a reality of what they captured in their language and how simple and downplayed we made it. Actually, um, I have um, uh, basically seen them open their uh, their source text that they've used for decades in their churches and said, "We need to revise. This is actually mm -hmm. wrong in the source mm -hmm. text." I've seen them wrestle with meat and flesh for example, as a term, um, more than any debate that I've ever seen uh, somewhere in theology. And they're, they're saying, no, this one captures it better. No, that one captures it better. Then you go to a source text and your English source text, you can have four and they, they're split down the middle. Two of them say right. meat, two of them say flesh. Well, then let's go back to the Greek or Hebrew and look it up. And so it's fun. The out of context, um, out of translation conversations are I mean, just things like perspective. So you get into Asian cultures and they'll say um, the Martha Mary, Mary story. And they talk right. about um, the diligence and the hard work that was there and how pleasing that was. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, we skip over that. We just beat her up. Um, right. So interesting. So, yeah, it's, it, it yeah. is a lot of fun. I imagine that would be fun. That's why I felt like I needed to ask that. So I'm curious, how, does this... The, what are the implications for this, especially since we realize that a lot of the unreached people groups and a lot of the language groups that are still uh, don't have scripture translated are in persecuted, restricted access contexts? How does this mass program uh, or method uh, allow for scripture translation to take place in those? Does it have any impact on the persecuted areas of, of the world? Yeah, this this thing um, has changed the game in so many ways okay and so what you need to know since 2014 is we've touched nearly 1800 languages for bible translation since wow. then that's that's unprecedented that's by far um a crazy amount of languages in a span of time that god has just brought to us mm. um so that alone has changed the game um it's shocked the world still and believe me um Anything that you ask me has already been asked tenfold by other organizations out there, and they're still asking because um, they're still in shock even five years later. Um, so beyond that, though, think about the dynamic of what we did and the person who asked the question. 
can you give us something that we can have ownership in? Wow. Mm -hmm. Which means expertise ownership in that we as a church can take on and judge the quality of because you can use us, you can hire us, you can train us, um, but can you actually trust us with everything in Bible translation? Because we're a church now and we're risen. Um, um, we're risen in this ranks of development over 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that's a challenging question and that's a change dynamic. And so our answer to that is yes. I, I have a hard time saying to somebody that I care more about quality than them who are raising children to be that next generation of Christians. Mm -hmm. And so um, they do it with more diligence and more care. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of the questions you're asking me here today, they ask the first day in a workshop. Mm -hmm. um, but now let's think about that ownership and what it means in those persecuted areas. China. In China, we don't get a normal workshop. We actually get a very uh, secluded, hidden workshop and um, it looks a little bit like um, uh, really if you're coming, here are your rules. And the rules are um, we're going to not gather too many people. We're going to be in a secluded room and um, we're going to scatter people for everything, lunches, dinners, meeting in the morning, whatever it is. And I, I really asked why. And when I asked why, they said because it's noticeable. It's very visible and noticeable. Um, they're different coming from the village. And I thought, how different could it be? And when they came, it was shockingly different. They were so, they stood out um, like village people. They look like um, uh, in their full dress, that would not be anything that you would see in a city in China. So, so we get five days of training and whatever we give them has to be good enough for them to go back to the village and continue translation. We don't abandon the project, but we then have to do things differently to go in and go out of that community. In the Middle East, we have seen um, death uh, happen from some of the translators there, and people get caught and arrest. Um, we're going to be doing this in Venezuela soon as, as well, mm. and training people in Colombia. Well, I'd love to know, as we kind of wind things down, for people who are burdened thinking about this and realizing just how significant it would be to not have the Bible in your language, not be able to fully know God's Word, what parts of the world do you see still have the biggest areas of need for Bible translation? I'm going to start with the deaf worldwide. Um, they're, they're collectively the largest unreached people group in the world. Okay. That's about 70 million people. And, um, there mm -hmm. is zero whole Bibles. Um, so we really have a lot of work to do for 425 languages still. Um, by the way, out of that group, 80% of them never even learn a sign language. So we have a program called Sun symbolic universal notation that teaches them how to access God's word in five days. We're spreading that program out around the world as well. Um, now, wait, let me, let me cut in. So couldn't yeah. the deaf read written scripture? <laughs> I think that's yeah, probably what most of our listeners question. are thinking. Interesting. First is, um, no, uh, they do not, they do not get the education you might think. Um, and, and uh, worldwide, um, my first experiment was here in the United States, and I brought four people to the table for the first experiment of methodology, and one of them didn't even know their sign language fluently. Another one hmm. could not read. One was a pastor. One was a music minister. 
Hmm. That's a pretty big range out of four people that were randomly brought to the table. Okay, take that around the world, and you're talking about zero literacy in some populations of the world, zero education in a lot of populations of the world. Met a girl in India, and she had no name. She was 20 years old because she had no value. She hmm. was never in school. Oh Parents didn't bother. And we taught her how to access God's word in five days. Literacy is also not the language of a deaf person in sign language. It's a different language. Okay, so when you talk about American sign language and say, well, they can they can go to school and they can become literate in English, it's a different language. That's not their language in sign language. It's not just a transfer of English into sign. Right. It's a whole different different context. So well, um, yeah. that population is just huge and needing. And I'll yeah. just tell you, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, are they're beating us. They're getting, mm. they're getting materials translated. So thank you so much. We, we could go on and on and maybe we just have to have another discussion at some point about this. But as someone who loves uh, history and especially missions history, the things you're saying really resonate. I remember reading um, in Moffat's History of the Church in Asia, which is a highly recommend, uh, hi him highlighting that one of the biggest reasons for the spread of Islam was that there was actually a lot of of Christian tribes in Arabia, but no one had ever taken the time to translate mm. uh, the scriptures into their languages. And so when Muhammad came around, he, he seized on that and said, Hey, look, there's, there's scriptures for, for Christian folks. There's, but there's no, there's no scriptures for, for Arabs. Oh. And so the Quran was, was that filled that, that gap. Wow. And, and I also have a, a really good friend um, that, uh, was was raised uh, in Romania. His dad was in Romania during when the Soviet Union was at its peak. Um, the gypsy family and uh, a, a missionary came around and handed out Bibles. That's all they could do. And his father got a hold of one of those copies of scripture. Uh, he was a drunk. He was a cheat and um, read that thing cover to cover and started going to church because of that accepted Christ and his family thought he was having an affair because he was suddenly sneaking out every morning on Sunday mornings and going to church. <laughs> it was because he got the copy of the scripture in his own language and uh, it, it changed the whole course. And now he's a pastor in California. The, the son is a pastor in California, um, you know, as part of this long story. And so, um, you know, I, I pray that our, our listeners will hear this. They'll get excited about Bible translation. They'll support a translator, um, support uh, the ministry of Wycliffe or ABWE or another organization that's involved in translation. And we'll consider even answering God's call to be involved in in this uh, this unique endeavor and seeing the gospel spread. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you as well. Your work is really appreciated. Thanks for listening. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.